Welcome to the Holly Springs Deep Dive Podcast. This is the last episode of this election season, and I'm so happy that you've been working so hard to become a better informed voter. This week's episode is dedicated to the race for the District 37 North Carolina State House seat. As in previous weeks, I intended to have interviews with both candidates, but again, I don't. And it's not from the lack of trying or from a lack of an agreement with the other candidate to interview. Let's focus on who did make herself available to talk to me now, Sydney Batch, our incumbent state representative who's running for her second term. We can talk about her opponent at the end of the episode. If you're enjoying this podcast, consider becoming a supporter by clicking the Patreon link on my website at hollyspringsdeepdive.com. This podcast is free to listen to, but it's not free to make. Okay, ready to hear from Representative Batch? Let's dive in. I'm talking today with Sydney Batch. She is our North Carolina House uh, Representative in District 37. Hi, Sydney. How are you today? I'm great. How are you? I'm good. I, um, I'm going to tell you, we had an appointment to talk yesterday and, uh, you were doing some campaigning at the last minute. And it actually was such a relief to me that we weren't recording because about 10 minutes after our appointment was supposed to start, my phone started playing, um, a song that would have mortified me if it had come on in the background. <laughs> <laughs> I had to restart the thing. It was crazy and embarrassing. And I'll just go ahead and tell you, it was that song, Thrift Shop. So I <laughs> oh, that did funny. it throughout the day. So so that's fun. We probably, and needed, that. We probably needed that level of levity, frankly. Uh, these <laughs> Maybe. COVID, is, COVID is, has definitely challenged many of us and pushed us to the brink. So I certainly think that we probably would have gotten a good laugh out of it. I've, I think that my... Pixel three phone has gone crazy in um in in the pandemic, so maybe that's what happened to it. I had to restart to get it to stop. Wow, playing that song, yeah. So this, uh, you are finishing up your first term, is that right? I am. Okay, so what what areas of Wake County does your district cover? So, um, an interesting question. So there was a redistricting lawsuit that came down. And so the lines actually had to be uh, drawn differently. And so my district that I actually, that I actually won and am currently serving in is different than the district that I am running for reelection in. But ultimately what it looks like is that I represent uh, parts of Holly Springs, Apex, Fuquay Verena, and Anger. Um, with the redraw, I still represent parts of Apex, Holly Springs, Fuquay, um, and I represent Willow Spring and Garner, and I don't represent Anger. So I sort of flip-flop some precincts. So I have five new precincts. So when people actually go to the ballot, um, they may have... Uh, they may not recognize my name or recognize another house member's name because the districts have changed in Wake County. Hmm. Okay. So how has that complicated your campaign at all this time or um, just moving things around? Yeah, no, that's a great question. I think outside of just the, the challenges with COVID and campaigning, I think the biggest difference is that we had to introduce ourselves to people that we currently don't represent, right? So I'm calling into five different precincts, uh, the new precincts that I picked up and said, I wasn't on your ballot and I'm not currently your representative of the North Carolina House, but in 2020, 
2020, when you go to the polls, you will see my name and not your current representative's name. So I'm introducing myself um, to those voters and telling them uh, a little bit about myself and the policies uh, that I've supported and some of the things that I've done um, in office. So I think that's the, the biggest difference. And then there will be people who have actually said, wait, I thought you were my representative when they've gone to the ballot box. They're like, why is your name not on my ballot? And so I don't think a lot of people realize that they're because of the redistricting decisions with the courts that they're, many of them will have different representatives. Uh, than yeah, it can get complicated, I guess, pretty quickly when uh, when lines are redrawn. Yeah, absolutely. So um, the way that campaigns are running is crazy different just two years later. Um, how is uh, running for re-election in a pandemic different for you than it was uh, last campaign? Yeah, that's a great question. So for last campaign versus now, I think there are definitely some challenges and some different, some, some good and some bad. In 18, I was... Uh, actually running for office the first time. And in September was had, uh, was diagnosed in, with cancer in August and then had a mastectomy in September and then took three weeks off and they came back to the campaign trail. So this time I don't have cancer. Yay. Which is great. Yay. It makes uh, running for office uh, second go around a lot easier without having that challenge. Um, and, and even with a pandemic going on, even with it's the pandemic. easier than, than having breast cancer and trying to do this. Yeah. And I actually was, um, I went to go and see my oncologist recently. And one of the things that I was uh, talking to him about and my radiation oncologist is that, it, you know, I, I feel so blessed that I'm not having to go through treatment in a pandemic because of all of the other issues and concerns that people have to face uh, along with their health and, and having, you know, obviously uh, the, your immune system being uh, suppressed, et cetera. So I think the major difference uh, outside of just my health, which I, I am very um, blessed to have this time and, and be in remission, is that we are, um, we've had to shift right after the, everything sort of shut down. I focused a lot of my energy and time um, less so on campaigning and more on reaching out to constituents uh, we used phone banks to actually reach out, make sure people were okay, asking them if they needed help. And so I spent uh, the first couple of months actually just helping people with setting up uh, certain needs, for instance, if they had food insecurity issues, getting them referrals and into community groups that they needed, uh, helping out with making sure that kids, especially um, who had to immediately go to home and virtual, uh, made sure that they had hotspots and working with some of the organizations and businesses in the area to ensure that happened, um, making sure that a lot of people who were applying for unemployment could actually get unemployment and ha have it be delayed. There were so many issues with our unemployment that my legislative assistant and myself spent a lot of time really just checking in on people. Um, and then after things, things haven't settled down, right. But people I think have gotten more um, used to sort of what COVID has done is that we were able to then shift to more of the campaign side. So for those first few months, it was, you know, addressing uh, a lot of the needs for small businesses who are trying to get grants or loans, connecting them with banks, PPP, um, other grants in North Carolina, et cetera. And then now it has been much more of a lot of phone banking. So I spend a lot of my time on the phone. Um, most of my time now is on the phone. So between just you know fundraising, which is always hard in, in a pandemic and trying to navigate, making sure that people who 
who have the ability to give can donate, but those who can't, right? It's just a very different uh, dynamic that we have, not wanting people to give money if they are uh, financially strapped and having a difficult time due to job losses, et cetera. And then I just do a ton of phone banking because we aren't, my campaign's chosen not to actually canvas. We're not knocking on doors. We're not meeting voters. Um, it's a really great way to connect with voters. And I miss that a lot. It's actually my favorite part of campaigning. Uh, is just being able to talk to your constituents and ask what their issues are and what they're thinking about and take their suggestions on on what's to come next. But for me, um, you know, I just, I feel like given COVID, given the safety concerns, I don't want to put, I don't want to make voters feel uncomfortable by talking to them at their house. I don't want to put my volunteers at risk um, or myself. And so we've just decided to turn those efforts to, texting voters, um, calling voters, sending, you know, mail since we can't canvas as much. And so there's a lot more digital um, and TV and mail because I'm not at people's doors. Um, And that's a decision that my campaign has made, but I think that it's best to err on the side of caution and make sure that Mm -hmm. people's health is prioritized over me knocking on your door and asking you. Yeah, I've gotten I've gotten a lot of handwritten postcards this year. Oh, yeah, that is true. Yeah. So there have been amazing uh, people who've just said, hey, can we just do postcards? Can we write postcards to people? Um, so yeah, there's a lot of postcarding uh, that has actually gone out. So our campaign through volunteers, it's not even uh, anything that we had set up. We just had people reach out and say, hey, can we send postcards? I'm like, absolutely. Um, so it's been really great for people to handwrite postcards and build up their calluses that have been lost over the years <laughs> since most of us don't write anymore. <laughs> I barely even recognize my own handwriting anymore. And um, like like you said, I can't write as long as I used to be able to. Yeah. Like our hands are cramping up. Yep, exactly. So tell me about your first term. Um, what kinds of things did you learn? What um, have you accomplished? What are you proud of? What uh, do you feel like you still need to do? Yeah, so I think what uh, the first term is, it's crazy that in some ways it seems really long and others really short. I think that it's drinking at first, it's drinking from a fire hose and trying to figure out all the different moving parts. I have the advantage of being an attorney and being a litigating attorney. I know how to read statutes. I know how to interpret laws. I understand how to apply them, et cetera. I also do appellate work. So it was easy for me to jump in, be able to open up a statute book or to look at the bills that are proposed and know exactly what the bill would mean. Uh, the thing that I didn't know that I was really surprised about is just the the wide breadth of information that you need to learn um, and understand and the importance of having other individuals. People, you know, will always say, oh, what do you guys do? And, you know, one day we had, I think, a three-hour conversation about a, a bill for commercial fishing and fisheries and whether or not fish should be able to spawn and so you had you can't you know go and actually fish and catch any fish under a certain size because they need to have the first ability to spawn first right like three hours of a debate about this um, <laughs> I didn't know that I would literally be engaging in having to know all of these different areas um, that I just that most people don't ever really think about uh, and what the state actually passes in legislation and deals with so the um, that was a surprise of I, I mean I knew that there was obviously a lot that the legislation uh, that we pass. But the other thing that I was actually surprised about and that doesn't actually um, 
doesn't tell the story because I think politics can become so divisive and people go in their echo chambers and they have their own opinions about everything is that I would say 90%, 85 or 90% of the bills that actually pass through the General Assembly are by a majority support right, of both parties. I mean, some of them, many of them unanimous support. Um, and so you have the you have some people who you may have your one or two, but the vast majority of those bills, like we, we agree on. Uh, and that's, that, that is part. so nice. We talked about that um, uh, with Sam Searcy, yeah. uh, our, our um, sitting Senator who's um, up for reelection this year too. He was in the last episode and that was really surprising and reassuring to me to find out that it's not just like snipping at each other and dirty looks across the aisle and, you know, kind of, negative um just interactions all the time that's very reassuring to yeah. know that it's not like that yeah really and it, and that was that was definitely surprising cuz you hear right and this is part of what i think we need to do better as a society what we need to be doing better as you know as media entities is not always just taking you know the bait and going after just the things that are more salacious or exciting or dramatic or divisive um, those are the things that get, right, right. Yeah, like those are the things <laughs> that get all of the attention. But you know, it's not a situation where anyone wants to write about fish spawning, like you said, right? It's just it's it's not that exciting. Or people are like really, that this is something you guys talk about. Um, so I think that is by far one of the things that I, I would like people to know is that yes, don't get me wrong. There are certainly some debates and there are certainly some um, heated arguments and strong feelings on on both sides of the aisle. But what has been refreshing is that that is the minority of what we do on a regular basis and that we are able to work together um, in a lot of ways to get things done. And so I'm most proud, I think, about you know, a piece of legislation I'm most proud about it, even though it didn't get passed, I think I talked to you about this when we first talked is just my uh, paid family leave bill that I was one of the primary sponsors on. We're seeing that, especially with COVID states um, and then also the federal government having provided paid family leave. Uh, it shows that it saved uh, thousands of lives by having people stay at home and not have to come to work sick and potentially exposing other people and uh, mm -hmm. making them sick and potentially killing them and allowed for people to, of course, have some type of financial security and safety net by not worrying about losing their jobs or their housing because they had uh, leave to actually have money to pay, pay their bills and to, to tempt you know, to stem the tide with regards to what was going on with them. And we'd also know that some people for COVID, they recover really quickly and others, it takes a much longer time. So outside of the fact that COVID is here and eventually it will be gone, um, we know that people get sick, that people need to take time off to take care of their loved ones and their children and their parents. Uh, and we just, 12% of North Carolinians don't have paid, you know, only 12% have paid leave. And that's a really low number, uh, people who oftentimes don't have a safety net and a savings to be able to go ahead and take the time off or job protection, right? When you might need to take the time off, but that doesn't mean that your job has the ability to, or that has to keep you. So I think that's probably my proudest le uh, legislative moment or uh, legislative bill, um, even though it- Well, why didn't it pass? It did not make it out of committee. Um, mm -hmm. There are- there were bills. And I think the other proudest part of, of 
on that same note is that early on, it became very clear politics is politics, right? It doesn't matter where you're in legislature, in legislature. Um, it was very, it, ma- it was made very apparent and clear to me that bills that had my name on it were not going to get out of committee and they were not going to move. Um, for instance, I had a social work bill that, because I'm a social worker as well. So it was a licensure bill. There was nothing exciting about that bill. But I was one of the primary sponsors on it. There were only three social workers, one of which has passed away, Representative Black, um, a good friend and colleague, and she passed away during the session. And so she and the other uh, representative and myself, as the three social workers were the primary sponsors on this bill, and we had another representative, a Republican representative, who was also on the bill. Um, and the bill didn't make it out of committee. And I was informed that it was because my name was on it and I'm in a really competitive seat. And so they were not going to allow for my bills to move forward out of committee because Mm -hmm. leadership um, in the North Carolina house decided that they wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to get credit for it. Little do they know, I don't care about taking credit. Um, There are enough peacocks in the general assembly and certainly not enough peahens. And I'm a peahen. I don't need to preen. I don't need to tell you how great everything is or that it was my idea. Uh, So I think my proudest moment is the amount of bipartisan legislation that got passed that doesn't have my name on it as a primary sponsor, but that I was giving bills to people who were the better messengers. Um, So there's legislation that, you know, I truly believe that we just need to get good legislation passed and people should care less about who's taking credit for it and more about how it's going to actually improve the lives of North Carolinians. And if you can, as a legislator, get out of your own way and allow for other people who are better messengers or have the ability to get it through committees because of who they are or because of the power that they wield, then that is what we should be doing. Um, so I think that's by far the the proudest that I have. Um, and an example with that social work bill, it still sat in the committee, um, but it they removed all of the language in it and they put it in a bill that was run by all Republicans. And then it got passed through legislation. Um, so that's okay. So that's some of the some of the politics that go into uh, into government. But again, you know, it's I share it only because I think it's relevant in why I have really worked to have bipartisan. Like that, I'm that I am very much in a. Uh, I consider myself somebody who really focuses on bipartisanship. I think as it helps as a litigating attorney that, you know, I deal with diametrically opposed people every single day in family law. And so if I can get and sit down at a table and work with adults, right. And other colleagues, and we can fashion out uh, settlement agreements for people's money and children, which they're the most viscerally attached to. And I can settle 90% of my cases in private practice. I can certainly sit down at the table and really help negotiate and be in a position where we pass legislation where no one walks away from the table without getting something and giving something and we have better legislation for it. And so I've been really happy and proud to be a participant in, in sitting at the table, working out these bills and making sure that, you know, everyone is at least able to feel like they have some ownership in the legislation that we pass. Well, and just focusing on your constituents and um, getting their lives better, right. uh, that's the win. Right. Absolutely. So what sorts of, um, I'm looking at a list of your um, bills that you've sponsored, and there's a theme. Um, it seems to be about equal rights, um, about education, um, 
teaching fellows program. Uh, it just seems to be a theme, education, equal rights, um, women's issues. Um, would you say that those are your primary um, issues that are top of mind or, or how would you, um, what would you add to that list? Yeah, I think my philosophy about legislation um, and how how I see legislation and things that I would be primary sponsors on or, or co-sponsors to is the old adage of a rising tide lifts all boats. And I really believe that if we are thinking about our constituents and thinking about our families and in particular working families, if we pass legislation that positively affects their lives um, and improves their lives, then we're a better state for it. We have a stronger economy. We have more educated individuals. We have better paying jobs. We have happier people. We have healthier people. So everyone is more prosperous when we are actually passing legislation. So for instance, one of the bills um, that I was, uh, that I'm a primary sponsor on was Medicaid expansion um, with COVID and everything that's actually happened since the uh, pandemic. They've seen that states that actually passed Medicaid expansion were able to handle the pandemic significantly better. Uh, and ha- are healthier and have had less issues regarding health wise. And because there are a lot of people who of course had coverage and some of the underlying health conditions that are in comorbidities that exist right now in our populations and that make you higher risk were already treated and under control because people had access. And so in North Carolina now there's over 600,000 North Carolinians that would have access to Medicaid expansion, you know, and in a time in which people are, we, we, de- we certainly, um, have a high unemployment rates. Passing Medicaid expansion would bring forty-five thousand new jobs to North Carolina, to North Carolina, and good-paying jobs. It would save a lot of our rural hospitals, and it would also put us in a position in which um, we would have, you know, over five hundred thousand, and estimated now over six hundred thousand North Carolinians who have actually have access to healthcare. And then for people like me, who is a small business owner and pays one hundred percent of the health insurance premiums for my employees my premiums would go down because what they've also seen in other states is that the more that we have in the insurance pool, the cheaper insurance premiums are. So it actually helps small business owners like myself to be able to provide the health insurance for their employees. And it will help some of these other larger companies who provide it because it's going to share the wealth and spread the wealth out and lower the costs. Um, And the amazing part is that it literally is, it doesn't, we do it without raising taxes. And the hospitals mm. and the healthcare industry has agreed to pay the 10% difference. Uh, federal government pays eight, 90% and, and the hospitals have agreed to pay the 10%, right? So it's amazing because then we don't even have to raise taxes, right? There's not, it is a, it is a tax neutral bill. And so it has so much great, uh, it has such wonderful outcomes and, uh, and we would still not pay a penny for it. So that's something that I think is really important. Education, for instance, I signed on to two bills that we filed in short session as a co-sponsor of Leandra bills, where in North Carolina, we're unique, unique in that we actually have a constitutional right to a sound basic education for every child. And so there's been a lot of litigation over the past 20 years of the Leandra decision and um, how we are supposed to actually ensure that every child has a sound basic education. In Wake County, we're really fortunate. Not everywhere in Wake County has the best of all schools, but in Wake County overall, we do significantly better than some of the other rural areas who can't raise money, raise enough taxes in order to improve their school system or pay their teachers enough. And so that plan... um, really spells out and talks about how we should be financially investing in education. 
and making sure that we are giving every child the best opportunity to be able to fulfill their potential. And I think it's one of the greatest equalizers. So education is another area that we've been, um, that I've been really vocal in. And also another bill um, is getting more nurses and mental health providers in our, in our schools, um, increasing the number of, of those, because we have really abysmal rates of the ratio, the, the nurse and social work ratio to students um, is well above the national standard. And so we need to make sure that we have mental health providers and nurses. Well, and when, you know, and when a kid um, has to get sick on a certain day at school, because that's when the nurse is there, or when they need to have their, um, you know, mental health crisis on a certain day, because that's when the counselor is available. That's, that's a scary situation to be in. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my son has an EpiPen. And, uh, you know, and when I went and had to do his medical form, uh, once he was diagnosed with the allergy, and I had to talk to the nurse, she was talking to me about the process and said, All right, well, I'm in, on these days, this is when I do it, but we've taught all the teachers how to do it. And you're like, what? You don't realize, right? Until you actually have a kid who has an EpiPen, you're like, uh, so now the teachers have to actually be able to figure it out. And this is where we're at, right? It just, you know, it's, it's, it's insane. So yeah, so that's the, that's the part of uh, education, uh, including, of course, raising teacher pay and treating them like the, the um, professionals they are. And I, I don't think people know this, but North Carolina is 50th in the percentage of our gross domestic product that we spend on education, right? We can't get any lower. We are the lowest. And so when you talk about making sure like we have a constitutional right for all of our kids to do well and thrive, we are not doing all that great when we're talking about the money that we invest um, compared to every single state in this country. And that's why a lot, you know, we lose a lot of our teachers to other states that are paying them more. Um, and cost of living, especially in Holly Springs, people know it goes up and up and up. But that doesn't mean that the jobs and people's salaries are growing as quickly as the cost of living. So something else that I've been a proud sponsor of making sure that we raise the minimum wage. Right. We have $15 minimum wage that happens over a course of time that allows people to be able to uh, businesses uh, to go ahead and work on increasing the hourly wage, wage and making sure that they're prepared. It's not going to be a, all of a sudden, but that people would be able to live where they work and work where they live. And that's increasingly not the case because it's really expensive um, to be able to live in certain parts of Wake County and other places in the state. Mm-hmm. It certainly is. Um, we, I've talked many times on this podcast about how um, a lot of educators who teach in Holly Springs schools can't afford to live here. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Unless you marry well, right? And you're like, you shouldn't yeah. have to marry well in order yeah. to be able to stay in education. Um, yeah. I was just talking to a constituent when I was phone banking uh, last week, and she said that she had left the classroom because she had moved from New Jersey, moved here, loved teaching but had to leave the classroom because she is not, she isn't married and she couldn't afford to continue to live um, in this, in district 37 on a teacher's salary as a single woman. And so she's now in education, but in a different capacity and outside of the classroom, even though her passion is being in the classroom. And so, you know, we we're losing people left and right that 
want to teach our kids and want to be there and just can't. Um, but for the, you know, the costs of living or they have to have a roommate or they have to have a second job. And I don't think that they should have to do that. Hmm. I don't either. Um, what sorts of stuff, um, what, what kinds of things are on the horizon? What, what is next for you if you get reelected? What is next? Uh, great question. So if reelected, I think I'm going to continue to push forward with some of the legislation that didn't move, uh, whether it be with my name or somebody else's. I've started to really work with, a, um, I believe in bringing stakeholder groups together and making sure that we can sit down and we can fashion out uh, bills and legislation where, again, everyone is is getting something and people are compromising and, and giving something away, right? It's like, it's perfect part of government when when it's working properly. And so I I think it's really important for us to sit down, especially when we're talking about um, the deficits or we're going to have a lack of revenue because of the economy, right? And we're not going to have as much revenue. We really have to look at where we're spending our money and we have to be fiscally responsible by eliminating a lot of these like pet projects and pork projects that you always hear about that are passed in legislation through big budgets because somebody knows somebody and therefore they want to do this and they want to do that. And we Mm -hmm. have to figure out what the nuts and bolts are that are going to allow for people to be able to continue to support themselves and their families for our businesses, especially our small businesses, to be able to weather the storm. You know, one of the things that I was really proud of is is sponsoring an amendment um, in the short session when we got back about uh, small businesses getting grants. And there have been a lot of loans out there and and businesses can get loans. But the problem with loans, right, is that you got to pay them back. And COVID's not going away anytime soon. And so when we're in a situation when you're asking for businesses to take out money and to go ahead and borrow against what they already have to pay back and they don't know when they're going to be able to open their doors through no fault of their own, we got to come up with other ways to help small businesses. And so I had um, proposed an amendment to give $50 million of uh, grants to businesses and prioritizing the small businesses who were closed and couldn't reopen because of the governor's um, the governor's uh, orders and allow for them to get the grants and prioritize companies that didn't get the PPP loans. Uh, Because while I did vote for uh, during the short session for businesses to remain closed and certain businesses to remain closed, I did it because public health officials said that that was the way that we could um, stop, you know, the, the rapid spread and making sure that our hospitals weren't, um, you know, overly utilized and that we have to have field hospitals like we've seen throughout the country and and wanting to protect people's health, but we can do both, right? They're not mutually exclusive. I believe we can walk and chew gum. And so when we can't open these businesses, we have to give them a lifeline. And that's the reason why I I worked and supported the COVID bill and putting measures in place for businesses to get a lot of, of money and also then additional money when we came back in July to go ahead and ensure that we could try and get more money to these businesses. Um, because that, you know, many of them are, are financially struggling. And as a small business owner, I get it. You know, I cut my salary and so that we didn't have to lay anybody off. And I just took a pay cut because I knew that they had their families to feed and I didn't want to put them on furlough because I couldn't keep them on their, on our health insurance that we have for them. And it was more important for me to make sure that, you know, if we had to suffer a while as, as owners, then we would. Um, but I really wanted to, to keep them on board. And so, 
you know, I think that's, that, that's what we need to do. Like when we get back, we need to figure out how we can help businesses um, who have had to shutter their doors, help them reopen if they're, if they're willing and able. Um, and we need to make sure that we are expanding healthcare options and making sure that our kids have the best chance possible in schools. Yeah, it's really sad to um, hear about how many uh, small businesses that were, you know, well established and some that were brand new that have just folded uh, in this economy. Um, I haven't really talked about it at all on this podcast, but um, one of the reasons that I'm not... um, doing uh, sponsored ads right now is because I'm the interim director at the Holly Springs Chamber of Commerce. So I've kind of had a front row seat to lots of people who just put their entire lives into a small business just to see it disintegrate in front of their eyes. And it's, it's so sad. Um, And I, I mean, I hope that I hope that something is able to happen to keep it from happening to more small businesses because it's it's heartbreaking to see. Yeah, absolutely. That's why the CARES money and the money that we've had really needs to go to businesses, right, and to small businesses to help them with regards to whether or not it's keeping their doors open, paying um, paying staff, and I mean, and, and one of the other things that I think we certainly need to look at when you're talking about COVID and some of the challenges is that. We have one of the worst and most antiquated um, and cruel unemployment systems in the country. And we have to fix the unemployment system. I mean, we have, you have 12 weeks that you can have as a max in North Carolina. Well, the pandemic certainly has gone on longer and people have been out of work for a much longer period of time and we're, are not going to get the benefits, but for the supplemental income that we actually got from the CARES Act people would not, like we would have had a much worse situation regarding where people are in the high levels of homelessness and um, people just losing absolutely everything. And we need to restore our unemployment benefits and repair that. And I filed a bill at the end of the session um, this year, actually, to go ahead and restore it to 26 weeks and to increase the weekly benefit amount because we have one of the lowest benefit amounts in the country. And mm-hmm. and again, this is through no no fault of people's, right? I mean, small business owners like myself don't want to lay people off, but sometimes you don't have a choice when you can't, you know, open or can't pay your bills. People are laid off. At least the unemployment system would have been there and could be there to help people, um, you know, weather the storm until we can get to a point where it's safe to go back and do the things that we can do to regrow and to strengthen our economy again. Yep. Well, is there anything else you wanted to talk about to make sure people uh, know? We we hit a lot of topics in thirty four minutes. No, we did. Um, no, I don't think so. I mean, I think that what I hope is that you know, COVID has done a lot to show us a lot of the fissures and issues that we have in our society and ways in which we can we can really take this as a learning experience and come out of it stronger. Um, and focus on setting up and preparing ourselves for whatever's next to come. I don't, you know, I, I, I don't pretend to know and read the future, um, but COVID has obviously shown us that we are, we, 
there are going to things that might stop all of us in our tracks. And we need to start preparing for that and have a long-term plan of sustainability with regards to our economy, uh, with regards to making sure that, you know, the Department of Health and Human Services has the resources it needs to deal with public health crises, et cetera. And I think they've done a phenomenal job given everything that has happened. And our state has done a lot better than a number of other states, especially when we talk about the um, tragic losses of so many Americans in this country. And so I, I have a lot of hope that we can get through this crisis. We will be stronger um, for it. We will figure out ways in which we will be more nimble and that we will be more prepared. And it called all of us that were across this country and the world, frankly, flat-footed. But we can take the measures and the lessons, I hope, that we've learned from this pandemic and make sure that we are significantly stronger for it. And it's been amazing to just see the overwhelming support and um, people volunteering and giving the money that they do have, even if it isn't a lot, to organizations to help others who are really having a difficult time, whether it be food insecurity, whether it be um, that they're going to, they can't turn off their, I mean, their lights are going to get turned off, right? We've seen businesses do a lot of wonderful and great things by saying, we'll put you on a payment plan. We're not going to cut off your electricity during this pandemic. So, mm-hmm. you know, while COVID may have broken this country, uh, frankly, in like two months, I do see that we are in a position in which we've seen the resiliency and the amazing uh, people, small businesses and individuals who have come together to help others uh, to make sure that we can get through this. And I, and I firmly believe that there's so much good out there and so many good people that really want to help um, that we can hopefully start whoever sitting in those seats come 2021 um, in January to prioritize all North Carolinians and make sure that we have a really strong and robust recovery and that we're one of the best places in um, the country to, to move to. And certainly Wake County is one of the best places to live. So yep. that's what I hope. And Holly Springs is a great place within Wake County. That it is. I was about to say we are, I mean, Holly Springs is an amazing place. That's why I'm happy to raise my family here. And that's why yep. and we relocated here from, from, um, Raleigh from Chapel Hill, Raleigh to now here. And we're just, we're really thrilled. So I really appreciate everything that you do and that you're able to, of course, interview people from all walks of life in different areas and allow people to understand and to get to know what's important in Holly Springs. It's fun. I'm really enjoying talking to all the people that I've met through this. That's for sure. Well, thank you. All right. Well, thank you for talking to me today. Um, Good luck in the election. It's coming up pretty quick. Um, So either way, um, thank you for what you have done for us. And if you're reelected, good luck in the next term. Thank you very much. I really appreciate it. All right. Bye now. Thanks. Bye-bye. Links and other information mentioned are in today's show notes. I contacted Aaron Paré, Representative Batch's opponent, on September 3rd. Within six minutes of my initial email, I received a friendly response, signed by Mrs. Paré, asking if we could do the interview in person. I promptly responded that I was okay with that since I had long microphone cords and let her know my very wide range of availability, including evenings and weekends. She responded that she'd look at her schedule and we exchanged funny quips about the crazy times we're in. Two weeks went by. No big deal, right? She's in the middle of a pretty heated campaign, so I pinged her again on September 18th, where I stated I'd reconsidered and would really rather do the interview virtually. 
A week and a half went by with no response, and on September 27th, I emailed again. Nothing. Just over one more week later, on October 5th, I wrote again, reiterating my sincere interest in connecting and giving the deadline of October 9th for her to let me know. Still, I have received no response. This episode was written, recorded, and produced by me, Karen Shore, with music by Doug Maxwell and Meteorite Productions. Be well, friends. Until next time. (music) 